Jesus came. 
So John chapter 12, starting verse 12, and ask you to stay in place in honor of the reading of the Word of God. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. I'm going to start in John chapter 12, verse 12, and get to verse 38 this morning. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. This is his written, Fear not, Father of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on the donkey's pole. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, He said, We're gaining nothing. Look, the world is going after him. Verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from the state in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went to the angels, and made him Philip went to Jesus. And Jesus answered, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grave who falls in the earth and dies, there remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much grief. Whoever loses his life, Whoever loves his life loses it, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And the voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it. That it is thunder. Others said, an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, The voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now the judgment of the world, now will the ruler of the world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. When the crowd answered, We have heard from the law of the Christ and return. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? But Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk on the path of life, but starting to retain. The one who walks in the darkness doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of God. For Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though they had done so, though he had done so many signs for them, they still did not believe in them. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who is believed what you heard from us? And the repentance of the Lord and what you Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Father, I pray this morning you'll let us treasure your word. The thing that you have given us, your words of life, that you and your kindness to us have revealed yourself to us to show us who you are. Lord Jesus, you've shown us why you've come. And I pray we would treasure that and we would cherish that and we would get all of the fact that in your kindness to us, you've given us these words of life. And I pray you open our hearts to understand this text this morning, that it might transform us, that we really might believe and experience life in your name, even the same. Thank you, you may be seated. So in light of the question I raised, why did Jesus come? How have you heard that answer over the years? How do I turn on my microphone? Well, there we go. So in light of the text we just read from John chapter 12, why did Jesus come? How did, has that question been answered? How have you heard other people answer that question? If you listen to Christian radio, if you listen to Christian TV, read Christian books, 
How have you heard the question answered, why did Jesus come? And unfortunately, there's a lot of things to get shared that are just simply not true. Things like, I've heard people say, well, Jesus came because we're just rough diamonds that need to be polished off. Or things like, you know, Jesus came, and I heard a pastor of a large church say one time that Jesus came to die to polish off your rust so your natural inner beauty will shine out. Friends, that's just wrong. That's not at all what we see in John 12 or the rest of Scripture. Uh, We've heard other things before, perhaps, that Jesus came because he didn't want eternity without you. There's so many things that get shared under the name of Christianity of why Jesus came that are simply not true. But the greater danger, I think, for a lot of us is there's reasons that Jesus came that are true, but they're not ultimate. They're perhaps secondary reasons. And those are ones that focus on us. Jesus came because he loves you so much. Jesus came because he cares so much about you, and it becomes about us. And yes, Jesus loves us, but that is not primary. And so what is primary? Why did Jesus came? Friends, there's a mission that's bigger than you or me and why Jesus came. And we see that in John 12. It's simply this idea today. Jesus came to die for God to be glorified. Jesus came to die for God to be glorified. Jesus came on mission. He came with a specific purpose, and that purpose was not primarily about us, friends. That purpose was, not, was for God to be glorified, for his greatness to be seen, for him to be held up as worthy of all, even as we have sung. Jesus came to die for God to be glorified. And I want to take that apart this morning and see that in John chapter 12. Let's start with this idea that Jesus came to die. The first thing I want you to see in John 12 is Jesus did come to die. He is on a mission here. And there's many texts that we could point to to see that he's coming with a reason, but we see it, I think, all laid out right here. And I want to remind you that Jesus' just coming to this earth was not accidental. It's not happenstance. It's not like a plan B in the plan of God. This was God's plan before the foundation world, before God even made a universe, before he made an earth, before he put people on the earth. God already had the plan for Jesus to come to die so that God might be glorified. And again, there's many scriptures that would show us that, but there's a glimpse of that right here in verses 14 and 15 in John chapter 12. Look at verses 14 and 15. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. What's going on here? Jesus is coming to earth, and particularly now is coming to Jerusalem, is coming to die, was the fulfillment of a specific prophecy. Here is Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. 500 years before this happened, it was foretold, God told us the prophecy that Jesus would come riding on a donkey. And what is he coming to do? What is this plan of God that's been around since before time began? He was coming, like I said, to die. He's coming now to Jerusalem to face his crucifixion in about six days. Well, we know that from this side of history, but at this point in time, the people don't fully understand what's going on. But Jesus makes it very clear to some of them. Look down in verse 23 of our text today, John chapter 12, verse 23. And Jesus answered them. This is after Philip and Andrew come to him and say that some of the Greeks want to see him. Verse 23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What is the hour? You've seen throughout the Gospel of John, the hour is referring to that time when Jesus would face his death, when he would be crucified. Up until this point in John, we've seen five times in our sermons to where it's been said the hour has not yet come. People tried to lay hands on Jesus. Jesus escapes because the hour has not come. 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 No one could touch him because his death is not an accident. It's not the work of men. It's God's sovereign plan from before time began. But now, after five times through these first 11 chapters of John being told no one could touch him because the hour has not come, we come face to face with verse 23 today, where Jesus answered them, the hour has come. The time is drawing nigh. It's the week of his crucifixion, the time for him to die. But notice how his death is described here in verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. To be glorified. That's a strange way to talk about death. What's going on here? 
Jesus is letting us know that his death is not some tragedy. His death is not some accident here. His death is not something that he couldn't help here. This was the high point of his mission. This is what he was coming to do. It's what he had decided to do before he made the world. His death is not a defeat, friends. It is a triumph. Therefore, his death is a glorification. He is being held up doing what he came to do here. If you're sure, like, Grady, I'm not sure that's really what that means. Well, Jesus, I think, makes it pretty clear for us in verse 24. He carries on this with an illustration for us to help us understand what he means by being glorified here and speaking of his death. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is saying, I'm coming to be glorified. It's going to cost me my death. I'm going to die but it's going to bear much fruit. Through his death, he is going to bring life to us. But friends, I think sometimes growing up in the church world, we can get accustomed to the symbols of the cross. We get accustomed to the fact that Jesus came to die, and we miss what he really suffered for our sake. Unless we miss what he suffered, look down at verse 27. This is Jesus speaking here. He says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose... I have come to this hour. Jesus is doing what he had planned to do. No accidents here. This is a sovereign plan of God. But it's going to be incredibly costly. In verse 27, he says, My soul is troubled. Literally in the Greek it means his soul was in turmoil. God the Son says, My soul is in turmoil. Why would his soul be in turmoil when he's doing what he came to do? Well, he's fully God, but he's also fully man. And he knows what he is about to experience. He's about to experience in six days from when he's saying this, the worst form of execution agony ever invented by all the wickedness of earth ever. The cross is not just a pretty symbol of our faith, friends. It is the worst form of execution ever invented by mankind. You probably know this, but if you're not familiar with how did people die on the cross, it wasn't a quick death. They got hung on the cross. What had happened? They weren't just hung just with their nice clothes on. Their back, they were stripped naked. Their backs were beaten. Their backs are torn open. The flesh is wide open. They're not put against smooth wood that lines our walls. They're put against rough wood. And when you're hanging there, you can't breathe. You have to push up to breathe. And that raw flesh they beat up is now getting pushed up against splinters. And your back is getting ripped into while he's hanging there on that. But to make it worse, an expert, I said, they put a, 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 a spike through his feet. That means every time Jesus tries to breathe on the cross, he has to push up with his feet. The nerve endings are going around that spike, and the pain shoots up through his body, just trying to breathe. And eventually you die on the cross by suffocation. You die up there as you're in the heat, you're dehydrated, you're starving up there. But what kills you is the suffocation. You get to where you're so weak from the elements and being out in the sun that you get to where you can't push up anymore, you can't breathe, and you, and you basically suffocate to death on that cross after several days, typically. That's what he is about to endure, what he's about to face. And he says, my soul is in turmoil but notice he says very clearly in there, it is for this purpose I have come. But friends, the suffering of the cross is not the worst form of suffering Jesus is going to endure there. The, what he's enduring on the cross, yes, is painful. But for the first time ever in all of eternity, the Father's going to look away from him. The wrath of a holy God is going to be poured out upon him on the cross. And as awful as the thought is of the spike in the feet and being pushed up with the raw flesh on the back and suffocating on the cross is, that pales in comparison to God himself, God the Son, experiencing the wrath of God the Father poured out on him because of your sin and because of mine. Friends, this is what Jesus is enduring in just a few days here. And as we think about the cross and we think about the suffering, friends, it's important for us to remember 
that God is so holy, he can't tolerate sin. The only way sin can be dealt with is to have it punished. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights as we've looked through the attributes of God, we've seen that, that God never forgives sin. God only forgives sinners. God is so holy, he never forgives sin. He only forgives sinners. Either we deal with the sin ourselves, and that's in hell. And as much as people don't like to talk about hell, it's very real and it's very just because our sin is an offense against a completely majestic, glorious God. Either we deal with it on our own in hell, or Christ bears it as our sacrifice in our place on the cross. God never forgives sin. He only forgives sinners. Either we will bear the punishment for or Christ takes that punishment on the cross for us. That's the only way because of the holiness of God. Jesus came to die. He came to bear the weight of God's wrath so that his people could be forgiven. But what's the primary reason for him doing this? Because what he says here, I believe, stretches us. Because for a lot of people, our whole lives, we've been told it's all about you. It's all about me. It's all about us. That God loves people more than anything. That God is all about his people. And yes, God loves us, but that's not primary. That is secondary. But again, I don't want you to miss that God does love us. Look at verse 32 here in this text. Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Friends, this is a beautiful picture of love. Jesus, it says, I'm going to draw you. I'm going to call you. I'm going to woo you. And I'm going to do that for you and people from all different backgrounds. He's saying, when you were my enemies, I loved you so much. I endured the agony of that cross. I endured the wrath of God being poured out against me because I wanted to draw you to me. Friends, this is an incredible expression of the love of God. And I don't want us to miss that. I'm not saying God doesn't love us. He loves us that much with a love greater than anything we've ever experienced in this world. But friends, there's something that God loves more than us. And that's he loves himself and his glory even more than he loves us. He loves his praise and his fame. Jesus came to die primarily for God to be glorified. I want you to see that in the text, that he came to die. He's on a mission, but the mission is primarily about God, more so than about us here. Look at verse 23. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What does that mean? What is glory? Glory is a word we use a lot, but what do we really mean by that? Glory means God's splendor, God's magnificence, God's greatness. God's glory is his greatness on display. God's glory is literally the brightness that surrounds all of who God is. It's all that and it's so much more. What does it mean then we talk about we glorify God? We talked about this Wednesday night in our Attributes of God study. But friends, we need to be reminded that when we glorify God, we don't add to his glory. God doesn't change. God is fully glorious before there was even time. A hundred trillion years ago before there was even time, God was fully glorious. We can't add to his glory. Rather, we glorify him when we acknowledge the fullness of his glory that's already there. When we praise him for that, we're not adding anything to him. God needs nothing on this. But when we see his glory, his magnificence, his splendor, his brightness, his attributes, all these things about him, and we respond in awe and praise and worship, that's how we glorify him. We're not adding to him. We're just recognizing his glory. And that is the chief aim of why Jesus came, is for God to be glorified. I want you to see this in verses 27 and 28 of our text. But before we read it, I want you to catch the wonder of what we're listening to here. This is God the Son and God the Father talking. Friends, we have been invited in through the living word to hear God the Son and God the Father talking. What are they talking about? It's not football, not politics, not the weather. What do they talk about? As Jesus is just a few days away from his death, 
What does he talk to the Father about? The one he's been in perfect unity with as a triune God for all eternity, before time ever began, the Father, Son, and the Spirit were in perfect unity as a triune God. What do they talk about as Jesus is facing his death and his soul is in turmoil? What happens? Look at verses 27 and 28. Listen to their conversation. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come out of Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Jesus is a few days away from his death, and what does he talk to the Father about? God's glory. God the Father then replies and affirms. God doesn't correct and be like, no, 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 Jesus, you've got it all wrong. It's not really about me being praised. It's about all these wonderful people out there. That's not what he does. He doesn't correct Jesus and be like, oh, Jesus, I, surely there's another plan. I don't want to see you suffer. This is awful. Let's come up with plan B here. There's none of that. Jesus says, my soul is in turmoil right now because I know I'm about to feel the, your wrath. I'm about to feel the just punishment towards sin. And I'm about to endure that in incredibly this physically painful way at the same time. But he says, but God, my Father, glorify your name. And what does the Father say? Again, look at verse 28 and how the Father answers Jesus' prayer here. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Can God's primary desire in Jesus' death be any more clear? Jesus prays, this is about, I've come for this purpose. God, glorify your name. And the Father says, I have and I will. I can't see any more clearly how we could miss the fact that Jesus is here dying <coughs> primarily for God's glory. Now again, I know that stretches us, friends, because that's so different than what a lot of we've heard a lot of our lives and what a lot we hear through Christian TV and radio and Christian books that get propagated today. So I want you to see just a few other scriptures this morning before we jump back into John 12 to, to realize that God's glory is paramount, that God's glory is really a, what everything is about. Everything in life is not about us, it's about the glory of God. So we're going to pop a, a number on the screen pretty quickly. I want you just to see these to get a big picture of Scripture that goes with what we're seeing here in John 12. First Psalm 86, verse 9. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, Lord, and shall do what? Glorify your name. God's ambition in all that's happening here is for all the nations, not just one people group, but all the ethnic groups of the world to glorify his name, which is ultimately fulfilled in Revelation. John 17, verse 1. We haven't gotten to this yet, but this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is what Jesus prays right before his crucifixion for his disciples. What does he pray for his disciples? Father, they're so great. Make sure they get wealthy and make sure they have an easy life and get from birth. No. What is Jesus praying? He starts his prayer for his disciples with this. When Jesus has spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may do what? glorify you. He begins his prayer for us, not about us, but about God's glory. Further in his prayer, John 17, verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Again, in the middle of him praying for his disciples, he's still focused, if you put it back up there, Taylor, in verse 5, he's still focused on the glory of God. He's still focused on the glory that he had before time began. Again, like I mentioned earlier, friends, his glory doesn't increase or decrease. He had a full glory before the world was ever made. And again, he's praying for his disciples, but his fundamental prayer is the glory of God in that. Further in his prayer in John 17, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me. Oh, this is great. It's about us now, right? Why? They may be with me where I am to see my what? Glory. That you've given me before you, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. He's praying for his disciples to be with them, 
primarily because he wants them to see his glory is all about the glory of God. But it's not just in John, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, we see this again. You were bought with a price. We we're just talking about what that price was. So therefore, do what? Glorify God with your body. He redeemed us. He rescued us in a really costly way. We're just talking about so that we might glorify God. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him do what? Glorify God. Wait, wait, in my sufferings now, it's about God's glory? Yes, everything is about the glory of God. Even when we suffer, our ambition should be to glorify God. God is using those sufferings and trials to bring Him glory, even as He works faith into our heart. And then Revelation chapter 15, verse 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and do what? Glorify your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Everything we've seen from Psalms to Revelation, but really from Genesis to Revelation, is all about the glory of God. There's three more texts I want you to see in the book of Isaiah, which is fascinating insight into God's plan, and it's all about God's glory. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. My what? My glory I give to no other, for my, nor my praise to carved idols. He says, my glory goes to no one else. It's for me and for me alone. Everything is about God's glory. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7 it's closer to home. This is about us now. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for what? My glory, whom I formed name. So why did God make us? He made us for his glory. That's why we exist. That's why he redeemed us. Or one more, Isaiah chapter 48, verses 9 through 11. Listen to what God says of why he's shown mercy to his people in Israel's history. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. And then verse 11, listen to what's repeated here. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how shall my name be profaned? My what? Glory I will not give to another. Why was God merciful to Israel? It wasn't for Israel's sake. He said, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. My glory I will give to another. Friends, Jesus, everything is about the glory of God. And Jesus came to die primarily. Yes, he loves us, but primarily above that, he came for the glory of God. And friends, that's hard for us. Because in our selfishness, we know that pursuing our glory is so wrong. We're full of pride. We are full of selfishness. And when we act in terms of our glory, it's really wrong and really simple and really evil. And if we're not careful, we can project that onto God. And think, oh, this is selfish of God. How could God want this offer himself? Friends, there's a big difference between God and between you and me. We're full of sin. We're full of pride. We're full of selfishness. God is holy, perfect, awesome, majestic. All the stuff we sang about God earlier in the service, he is all that and so much more. For God not to be committed to the highest good there is in the whole universe, he would cease to be God. Therefore, God is committed to his glory, not our glory, because everything is about him. That's it's the way things should be. And friends, it's ultimately best for us. Because if God gives us anything besides himself, we're not going to be satisfied with it. Our souls need God. Our souls need the only thing that can satisfy us, and that is him and seeing his glory. So Jesus came to die primarily for the glory of God. Now, what do we do with all this? Again, I recognize this can stretch us. This can make us a little bit uncomfortable. But Jesus has a way of doing that. He has a way of doing that with the people in this particular text as well. He stretches them in their understandings as well. Look at, what he, look at what happens in verse 13 back in John chapter 12. <clears throat> Jesus stretches the crowds and their understandings of who he is. 
So verse 13, so they took palm, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. If you remember back to March when we preached on the triumphal entry on, on Palm Sunday, the palm branches were a Jewish national symbol. The equivalent today would be, this happened in American culture, he'd be coming and we'd be waving our American flags at him. This was a Jewish national symbol. They were wanting a political Messiah. They weren't wanting Jesus for who he was. They were wanting him for who they dreamed he should be. And so they were celebrating really a savior of their own imagination, not the Jesus that he really was. And so Jesus stretches their understanding. The, the Messiah is coming. He's about to redeem us. He's going to get us out from political Roman control. So what does he do? He doesn't come riding in on a war horse. He goes on a donkey. And plod, plod, plod. Wait, why is he coming in on a donkey? That's not what they expect. Then he starts talking about suffering and dying. And they're going, wait, wait, what's this? And he starts talking about all the nations, not just about the Jews, it's about the whole nation. And Jesus now stretches them beyond everything they expected for the Messiah. He has a way of doing that. But he does that with his disciples as well. In John chapter 12, verse 16, the disciples are watching this and they don't get it either. They're being stretched. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things had been written about him and had been done to them. And so Jesus is stretching the crowds. He's stretching his disciples and their understanding of who he is. And friends, when we come to texts like this, he stretches us as well. And that's good for us. Do we want a God of our own imagination that we can manage? Or do we want to know God for who he really is? So how do we respond to this truth that is primarily about God's glory? That our existence, our salvation, our lives are all about God's glory. How do we respond to that when it stretches us a little bit? Well, I think we see three different responses in this text here. They kind of show us different ways we can handle when Jesus stretches us. The first way you see some in this text handle Jesus is they just simply deny him. They don't like being stretched in what he's saying. They don't like the fact of what he's coming to do. And so they just deny him. Look at verse 19. This is the Pharisees, who we've seen a good bit of in recent weeks and months here. The Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And what a, what a great indictment that is of Jesus and his, and his mission here, that they see that the world is following after him already on this. They don't like what they're seeing, so they decide it's time to kill him. We saw that last week. They're even willing to kill Lazarus as well, the man who's brought from death to life to fulfill their ends. They don't like it. But they're not the only ones who, don't, who get stretched and who deny who Jesus is. Look down in verses 28 and 29. We have just read earlier about Jesus praying for the Father's glory. And the Father answers with this voice from heaven, I have glorified and I will glorify it again. So what does the crowd do when they hear this? So they fall on their face and go, oh my goodness, we got it all wrong. We're ready to worship Jesus. No, look at verse 29. They've just heard the voice of the Father speaking to God the Son about what he's going to do. In verse 29, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel spoke to him. This isn't what they think the Messiah should be. And so they're willing to deny what they've heard and start trying to explain, no, that, that really wasn't God speaking. That must have been thunder. That must have been an angel. They deny Jesus because it stretches them. And that leads us to verse 37, which is one of the most indicting verses, I think, in all the Gospel of John. That we had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Friends, they had seen a dead man come back to life. They've seen the blind receive sight, deaf people hear again. They've seen water turn to wine. You, you can go through the miracles of John. And they've seen these things. They've heard an authoritative teaching unlike anything they've ever heard before. And they go, no, no, let, let's kill this guy. We don't like what we're hearing. They deny Jesus. He does not fit their paradigm for who God is. He's not the type of God they want. And so they deny him. Now, friends, is it any different today in human nature? People come face to face with who God is as he's revealed in the pages of Scripture. And, the, and you'll hear things like, 
you know, I could never follow a God who would create a hell or send people to hell. I just, I, I can't do that. I can't follow that God. And they deny him because it's not the God that they want. You know, I don't really want to follow a God who really wants me to have sufferings and trials in this life. Surely a God would never do that to me. I'm not going to follow a God who wants anything besides blessing me with a big house and a new job and all these things. And there's different ways that people do it today, but the same thing happens. God doesn't do what they want God to do, and so they deny him, and they're done with him. They choose their own way of life over revealed truth, and they sit in judgment on who God is instead of letting the word of God sit in judgment on them to change them and transform them so they might see the glory of God. That's not the only response we see of people in this text. There's another response that's also equally wrong and dangerous, and I think sometimes it's more dangerous in the church than even what I just mentioned. And that is you see some in here who, try to, who don't deny Jesus, but they try to conform Jesus to who they want him to be. They don't deny him, but when they start getting stretched in who he is and what he came to do, they start trying to conform him to their own desires. That's what we saw with the triumphal entry, with the palm branches waving. Hosanna, the king has come. They're trying to push Jesus into a political role. Jesus, surely you're coming to give us freedom from this Roman tyranny over us. That's what your main mission is, and they're kind of pushing him towards that role. We see it again in verse 34 in our text today as well. <coughs> After Jesus has talked about dying and the sacrifice they're going to take, the crowd answers him, verse 34. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Jesus has told them what's going to happen, and it doesn't conform to the, who they, how they think God should have worked. So what do they do? They argue with him. In fact, the I and the you here are emphatic in the Greek. When he's, they're saying this with a stress, the, excuse me, the we and the you here are the, what's emphatic. And so if you read it the way it would have been read in the Greek, it would have been the equivalent. So the crowd is saying, we have heard from the law that the Christ was heard. How can you say the Son of Man must be there? Who is the Son of Man? They're, they're arguing, they're angry, because he stretched their thinking of who the Messiah was supposed to be. And they're saying, you're not conforming to our expectations. How dare you do this to us? The Messiah surely can't die. Show us how that could really be the case. Again, is human nature any different today? We look at how people respond to what God calls them to do. You hear people who have strongholds of sin. God knows I can't help it. It's, it's okay for me. Or God understands why I can't forgive that person who offended me so badly. That God, God can just get over that. It's okay. God really doesn't expect me to sacrifice to help that person. Surely God wouldn't call me to do that. Or, you know, or even God has promised me if I have enough faith, this will just go away, and I just need to claim that. There's so many things that we do where we start trying to fit God into our paradigms of how God must move. And friends, both of those are wrong, either denying him or putting him into, trying to force him into how we want him to operate. But there is a right response we see here in John chapter 12 that becomes the example for us, and that's simply this. We follow Jesus for who he really is. Not who we want him to be, not a God of our imagination, not a God we can manage, but we follow him for who he's revealed himself to be, a God who is committed to his glory above everything else and who made us for his glory, and who saved us for his glory, and has given us life for his glory, and has given us trials for his glory, has given us his word for his glory, who's done all these things for his glory, and yet he still loves us, but it's for his glory. We follow him for who he has revealed himself to be. In this particular text, I see two groups that were not deterred by his hard teachings, they got, who were not turned away by the fact that he was stretching them. And the groups that follow him here were not the religious leaders, they weren't the people living in Jerusalem who would have had the most access to the teaching. The first group we see is the crowd from Bethany, the friends who saw Lazarus get raised from the dead. Look at verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he, raised, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Friends, remember how risky this was? The Pharisees said if anyone knows where Jesus is, they must report it so that we can arrest him. And this group isn't going to the Pharisees saying, we know where he is. 
They're walking around saying, everyone, we know where Jesus is. Come, believe, we're bearing witness. This is a man who's raised the dead to life. They are taking a great risk to follow Jesus and to make him known. They're not the only group who's not just turned away and dissuaded by Jesus' hard teachings about his glory. The Greeks are as well, the non-Jews. Look at verses 20 through 22. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. These were the Greeks. These were the God-fearers. There was a group who came to worship, but they never converted to Judaism. And their response is they wanted to see Jesus. Much what we already sang earlier in our service today, the desire, the longing to see Jesus, to be in his courts, to be in his house. That's what you're seeing articulated and expressed here. They weren't dissuaded by the fact that Jesus is saying it's all about the glory of God. Rather, they're saying we want to see him. We want to see him for who he really is. And friends, for these groups that understood this, I think they ultimately understood what belief looked like. That belief is following Jesus for who he is, not who we want him to be. Look at verses 25 and 26 as we get this glimpse of the belief they had and it models for us what belief looks like. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now just a quick note here. What's this thing about loving and hating? If you were with us on Wednesday nights when we did the How to Understand the Bible series, love and hate is used in the Greek and the Hebrew as an idiom, an expression that would mean you love something more than another. It's an idiomatic expression. All cultures have idiomatic expressions. This is one of those. It means what you love primarily, what is greatest for you. And Jesus is saying whoever primarily loves his own life is going to lose it. But whoever loves something more than his life will get eternal life. And was it that they love more than their own life? The glory of God. What we saw last week is Jesus with Mary and Martha. They value Jesus more than everything else. They value God's glory more than everything else. And so what he's saying to us here in verse 25 is if your primary ambition, if your greatest desire is for your own life and what you want for your life, you're going to lose it. But if you really believe, if you love me more than that, if you love my glory more than that, if you're willing to value me more than everything else, then you will find it. You will keep it for eternal life. And that's what you see this Greeks coming in doing. That's what I believe the crowd from Bethany was doing as they fell in love with Jesus more than everything else. And ultimately, they found eternal life. When the Pharisees and the people with the palm branches and many others loved their life more than they loved the glory of God. And therefore, they lost it all in the end. Friends, verse 26 also elaborates for us on what belief looks like because it reminds us that following Jesus is very personal. Look at verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. We could do a whole sermon on that, but let me just say, the groups that found Jesus here, the groups who embraced who he was, not only believed it intellectually, if you really fall in love with the glory of God, if you really believe everything that's about God's glory, look at what it does to you. It makes you want to serve him. It makes you want to follow him. It makes you want to be with him. It becomes very personal. It's not just an intellectual thing, but it changes your very life on this. It means that I follow Jesus by loving him more than anything else. It means I follow Jesus by wanting to be with him and letting him lead me. When Jesus came to die, he was on a mission, and his primary mission, yes, to show us love, yes, to draw us to himself, but greater than that was that, the God, that God's glory might be seen, that he, did, he came to die for the glory of God. In light of that, in the light of different ways we can respond, the Gospel of John demands a response from us. So as we close, I want to ask you some questions. First of all, do we really believe that God's glory is most important? It's one thing for us to say that in church. 
But do we really believe the glory of God is what everything's about? That all of creation, all the universe, all of our life is all about the glory of God. Do we really believe that? Let's make it more personal. Isaiah 43, 7, people whom I made for my glory. Do we really believe that God made us, not about us, but he made us for his glory? Do we really believe that? Do our lives indicate that we're living in such a way that we understand we are made not for self, but for the glory of God? And then do we really believe that Jesus gave us life, that he loved us and gave us life so that we can in turn glorify God? So friends, my challenge for us in light of all this is, over the last seven days of my life and your life, what do we see? What are we glorifying? What are we talking about? If we can look at our thoughts, our desires, our affections, our conversations, are we understanding that everything is about the glory of God? Or have we fallen into the temptation of some we've seen in this particular text who want to conform Jesus and make him into who we want him to be? Or are we following him in such a way that's transforming us and changes that we might see him for who he really is? As we close, I want to leave you at verse 36 our challenge for us as we wrap up this morning. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Would you pray with me? Father God, we do proclaim this day you are a God who is all glorious. We've already proclaimed it in song. We've seen it in the Gospel of John. But Lord, you are majestic. You are great. And God, you are greatly to be praised. And Father, in my heart, in the heart of these precious brothers and sisters, would you so work in our hearts to help us realize everything is about your glory. God, would you work in our hearts to free us from the love of self and the love of material things and the love of all these things we saw last week that can, we can love more than you, whether it's wanting to be accepted, whether it's finances, whether it's material possessions, whether it's our own fame. Lord, it could be so many things. But Lord, I pray as your children that you would give us grace upon grace upon grace to free us from the love of those things or that we might see a glimpse of your glory, that we might fall in love with your glory, and Lord, that we might be people who then, in response to what you've done for us, out of your great love for us, we be people who would not just praise you, but let others know about your glory as well. I know there's dangers in all of our hearts because there's a very real enemy who's seeking to trip us all up. And God, perhaps in some of our hearts, there have been ways we've been trying to fit you into a box, to make you into God that we want, a God who does things the way we want you to do things. And God, if any of us have been doing that, would you forgive us for that? Would you right now free us from that, Lord? We really do want to follow you. We really do want you to be our Lord, our boss, our master. And God, would you free us from those things where we're trying to conform you to our desires, where we're trying to have a God we can manage. And would you let us right now just fall on our face before you, God, and see your beauty and see how good you are and trust you that you are good and you are on your throne and you are working all things for good and for your glory. And God, that you would give us faith to believe that, even if it's not the way we've wanted things to work out this week in our life. Lord, if there's anyone in the room who's been denying you, who there's things they don't like when they read in the Word of God and they have excuses, Lord, to why they don't believe, would you free them from that entrapment? Lord, even as you said, as you are lifted up, you will draw people to yourself. If there's anyone in this room, Father, who has never trusted in you, really, has never believed because of something that's been holding them back, would you today be drawing them, calling them, wooing them to hear your voice? Lord, for all of us, out of your children. Lord, we need you to keep drawing us and calling us and wooing us today to be giving us a hunger and thirst for you, giving us a desire for you and for your word and God for living for your glory. And Lord, I pray that you would do what only you can do. As we go throughout this week, God, I pray you would so fill our thoughts with your glory that God, our lives would be different because of it. We thank you for these things and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song?